apply it, we'd live by it, we'd teach it, we'd share it. Give us understanding into this text this evening and how we can apply it to our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, there are some Christians who inaccurately believe that the early church was a perfect church. You'll hear them. They'll say things like, we need to get back to the early church. The early church was a church of miracles and spectacular growth. Everyone got along in the early church. There were no theological differences in the early church. The early church leaders like Peter, James, and John, they were the perfect examples of Christian leadership. There wasn't any hypocrisy in the early church. They have this real rosy view of church. Now, I will tell you that I think the early church is a wonderful church. We should learn from it. We should do church the way they did church, but it was not a perfect church. They did not always get along. In fact, there were divisions in the early church. There were theological differences in the early church. The leaders of the early Christian church were not perfect. There were hypocrites in the early church. And tonight in our text, you get a picture of the imperfect early church. In our text tonight, Paul the Apostle confronts Peter the Apostle because Peter has sinned. It's an intense scene. You got these two heavyweights, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter in a Big-time confrontation. Let's read what happened. Look at verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. Paul is writing this letter, remember, to the Galatians, and he's telling this story. He says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James... He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew, separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So here was the situation. Back in those days, the biggest church really was the church that was located down here in Jerusalem. That was the mother church. As you know, that's where the church began. It was born there. It was the biggest church. Peter was a main leader in that church. He pastored it for many years. 
You could argue that Peter was the most recognized Christian leader of the day at that time. And Jerusalem was his home church. Now, in Jerusalem, most of that local church was comprised of Jews who had become Christians through faith in Christ Jesus. There were some Gentiles that had become Christians that were a part of that local church, but most were Jewish. The church grew, as you know, over the first 20 years and beyond. A church was born in this city called Antioch over here. It grew spectacular, and it became like the second main hub of the church. Antioch was a growing, healthy, wonderful local church. Paul, the apostle, and Barnabas and others pastored there. Most of the Christians in that local church were Gentiles who had been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there were some Jews, but by far, overwhelmingly so, the majority of the local church there in Antioch, Gentiles who had been saved. So down here in Jerusalem, you kind of have the Jewish house. Up here in Antioch, you have the Gentile house of the church. Okay, so Paul mentions an occasion where Peter came to visit the church in Antioch for an extended stay. Now, can you imagine how excited that church would have been? The Apostle Peter coming to visit our church. It would be like if Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, were he still living today, if he came to visit our church for a long, extensive stay, would we, would we be excited to see Pastor Chuck? There was great excitement. Peter's in Antioch. Now, that church in Antioch comprised of both Jew and Gentile, mostly Gentile. They did everything together. The Jews and Gentiles did everything together. They worshiped the Lord together. They had public services together. They prayed together. They participated in what was called the Agape Feast, where they'd all get together and share a meal and then also observe communion together. Jews and Gentiles sat at the same table. And I will tell you that that was a really big deal. That was a huge thing. Before Jesus came, before the gospel, before the church was born, Jews hated Gentiles. Jews did not hang out with Gentiles, and Gentiles hated Jews and did not hang out with Jews. If you were a Jew, you did not associate with the Gentile. You, you weren't friends with the Gentile. You didn't conduct business with a, a Gentile. And you certainly, certainly would not eat and share a meal with the Gentile. The Gentile, in the, in the eyes of the Jews, they, they were like the dogs. They had no law. They had no kosher system. They had no traditions. 
Before Christ, Gentiles and Jews did not hang out. Here in Antioch, we see one of the greatest miracles of the gospel. Jew and Gentile became one. They were one in Christ Jesus. Both saved through faith in Christ Jesus. And they ate together and they worshiped together. Now, when Peter arrived in Antioch, he joined them at the table. It does. It says, you know, before certain men came from James in verse 12, he would eat with the Gentiles. So Peter participated with the Jews and the Gentiles at the same table. He didn't demand the kosher law. He didn't do any of the hand-washing ceremonies. He didn't observe any of it. He sat with them. And you know why he sat with them? Because at this point, Peter knew that Gentiles were saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And they were not obligated to keep the law. He knew that. Paul and Peter had already had a discussion about that at a prior meeting. And you remember... In Acts chapter 10, Peter was called by the Holy Spirit to go visit a Gentile house, the house of Cornelius. He preached the gospel to the Gentiles. What happened? They got saved. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was told before that, Gentiles are no longer unclean. Peter knew it. So he gets to Antioch, and he sat with Gentiles. He ate with them. But then verse 12 says, certain men came from James, those who were of the circumcision. So a group of Jewish believers came up from Jerusalem. That's where James was. James was also a pastor leader in the church of Jerusalem. And they came for a visit, and these guys were that part of early Christianity, they were Jewish, and they believed that you should keep the law. They observed the law. They thought that that was part of the Christian experience. So they showed up. What did Peter do? Verse 12 says, but when they came, he withdrew... And separated himself. So Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. Peter started eating with that elite Jewish group. Peter was a hypocrite. Peter was acting one way with one group of people. And a different way with a different group of people. Now, why did he do that? Because, as I mentioned, he knew the truth. Verse 12 says that he feared those who were of the circumcision. He couldn't handle the social pressure. See, down in Jerusalem, most of the people were Jewish, right? And they were more ready to keep the law there and advance that you have to keep the law. And Peter didn't want to make any waves with his church back down south. And you know how it is when you have this social pressure in your life, how sometimes that will keep a good man from speaking up. 
That's what Peter did. And when Peter began to withdraw, the dominoes fell. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Even Barnabas was carried away with our hypocrisy. So the Jews in Antioch that used to have no problem eating with Gentiles began separating from the Gentiles. Barnabas, who was Paul the Apostle's right-hand man as the defender of the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, began eating exclusively with the Jewish people. It's been said that the sins of teachers are the teachers of sin. When a leader blows it, when a leader sins, others follow him in that sin, and that's what happens. So now we have a horrific situation in that church at Antioch, two tables, division. So, you had a Jewish table, and you had a Gentile table. And I've made this one bigger because you can think of it this way. You have a more elite, more spiritual, Jewish, law-keeping, cream-of-the-crop table. And then you have the poor, miserable, second-rate, less spiritual group. By Peter's actions, he created that. Paul saw this happening, saw what Peter was doing, and he became absolutely furious. Now, he could have thought to himself, and this would have been real easy, he could have thought to himself, I'm not going to rock the boat. This is Peter. (laughs) This is the Apostle Peter. Or he could have thought to himself, I'm just going to go with the flow. Peter and this little group from Jerusalem will leave in a few weeks. They'll be gone And when they're gone, we can all get back on track here at Antioch. It would have been really, really easy to think that. But Paul could not remain silent. Paul pointed the finger at Peter and rebuked him. Now you look what it says in verse 11. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Paul says Peter, the apostle, was to be blamed. It's a very strong word in the Greek. He's to be condemned for his sinful actions. It says Paul withstood him. Very strong word in the Greek. He opposed him. It's like he got on the opposite side. He got on the opposite side of the ring with Paul, with Peter. It says that he withstood him to his face. This is a face-to-face confrontation. Paul didn't wait for Peter and them all to leave and then talk bad about Peter behind his back. 
He talked to him straight to his face. In verse 14, it says, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all. This was a public rebuke. Paul rebuked Peter publicly within that whole church gathering. You just picture this in your room. There they are. There are the two tables. And Paul rebuked Peter. Paul said to Peter, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? In other words, Paul said to Peter, you know, when you first came, you had no problem eating with the Gentiles. Are you Jewish, Peter? Yes, I'm Jewish. You had no problem eating with the Gentiles. None. As soon as this other group came, you stopped eating with the Gentiles. And you began eating with the Jewish elite exclusively. Peter, by your actions, you are showing that you think there are two different groups in the church. By your action, Peter, you're compelling Gentiles to become Jews in order to be saved. What a tense moment. Do you wish you could be on a fly on the wall in that moment? Can you see Peter's face? Humiliated. Can you see the shock? Can you see everybody? Whoa. Paul showed astounding courage here in speaking up. And it was so important that he did because Paul, it would seem, was the only person in the room who saw what was really at stake. Look what it says in verse 14. He says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Gang, the truth of the gospel was at stake And that's because we know the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is a gospel of grace. Nobody gets saved by keeping any law. People get saved sheerly by grace. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus crucified and buried on the cross for our sins. Our sins were placed upon him. He died in our place. He rose again. The only way you get saved is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The Jew gets saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The Gentile gets saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The Jew is no longer under law. They're under grace. The Gentile is no longer under law. They're under grace. Everyone is one in Christ Jesus. 
And by Paul's behavior, he showed that he thought there really was this distinction. He was not walking straight forward, as it says, to the truth of the gospel. So Paul called him out. And this was a very, very important moment in the early church. Okay, so Peter continues, or uh, Paul continues to rebuke Peter as we continue in the text. And, and you can even see, you can read into it as we continue, that not only is he rebuking Peter, but he's rebuking all the Jews in the room, everyone that's letting this happen. And as we continue in this rebuke, we learn some wonderful doctrines about Christian salvation and Christian living. So pay close attention. He continues his rebuke, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, he's using that in an ironic way. Not sinners of the Gentiles. That's what all the Jews in the room would have thought of the Gentiles. They're the sinners. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So he's saying to everybody in the room, you've sort of created this, these, these two groups. You have the Jew and then you have the poor sinful Gentiles. You act as if there's two groups. There's not two groups. There's one group. And all are saved the exact same way, through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul put all the burden on the Jews in the room, including Peter, including other leaders. And he said, look, we're the Jews. We're born Jews. We were born under the law. And we know that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And we believe that. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We know that no man is justified apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, That would include the Gentiles. That is one of the most beautiful and most remarkable things about the gospel message, my brother and sister in Christ. We're all equal. According to the gospel of grace, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Nobody's better than anyone else. Nobody else on planet Earth is in a more favored position than somebody else. We're equal. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We are all helplessly lost, whether we're a Jew trying to live according to the law or a Gentile trying to live according to a Gentile law. Everyone gets saved by admitting that they need a Savior and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul will go on to write in this letter, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's not a slave nor a free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone's equal. 
Everyone comes to God the same way if you want to be saved. There's no distinction. And there should be no competition. There should be no comparison among different Christian groups. There should be no boasting, no elitism. Because we're all equal. Paul would go on later to write in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We all come equally. We all get saved the same way. And none of us can boast. Nobody can say, I did this, this, and that. We're all the same. So I, I want you to know, if, if, if you are a born-again Christian here tonight, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a walking miracle. God has changed your life. And don't you dare let anyone try to tell you that you're less spiritual or not as valuable as someone else. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal. We all get saved the same way. Now it's also in this these two verses that Paul uses a very, very important word for the very first time in the New Testament. Now remember, this is the second letter that made it into the New Testament. He uses the word justification. And this is a very important word for us to understand as Christians. Again, look at it. We who are Jews by nature, verse 15, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified... By the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see that word justified. Very, very important word for every Christian to understand. Because this is what happens to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When you do that, you're justified. Now, to be justified is to be declared righteous. It's to be declared innocent. It's literally a word that's used in the court. You stand before a judge. The judge hits the gavel and says, you're righteous. You're innocent. You're justified. As people, we are sinners. We are unrighteous. We are so lost. The only hope for us would be for God to declare us righteous, to justify us. That's the only hope. It says three times, you cannot be justified by keeping the works of the law. Why? Because you can't keep the law. 
You have no ability to keep the law. You say, well, I haven't broken every commandment. Listen, you break one commandment in the law, you break the whole law. You think of the law of Old Testament like a chain. Every link is a law. You break one law, you break the chain. You mess up once. You are a lawbreaker. None of us kept the law perfectly. None of us can. We cannot be justified by keeping the law. We can only be justified, as it says in verse 15, through faith in Jesus Christ. How so? Jesus died for all of your sins. All of your sins, past, present, future, were placed upon him at the cross. He took them upon himself. He rose again the third day. And the scripture says if you will place your faith and trust in him, God will declare you righteous. Not because you are. He declares you righteous. You're cleared. So don't lose the miracle of justification. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous. Immediately, one-time event, permanent status before God. That's incredible. That's incredible. You are no longer treated as the sinner that you are. You're declared righteous. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned once. I'm declared righteous in Jesus Christ through faith. Has that happened in your life yet? Have you been declared righteous? And that's how everyone gets saved. Everyone admits that they can't do it. They come to Jesus and say, please save me. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. You paid the penalty for all of your sins. And God says, justified. Declared righteous. Full-blown member of my family. Okay. Watch very carefully as Paul continues his rebuke. Look at verse 17. Read it carefully with me. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners... Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, stay with me. This is, this is important. Paul says, if we seek to be justified by Christ, and we ourselves are also found sinners. So, he is... Speaking to the greatest challenge of this idea of justification through faith alone. No law. The problem is sin. And the question is, what about sin in the life of a believer? 
So I'll ask you, do Christians sin? If you don't sin anymore as a Christian, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. That'll make you a public liar, right? Now, this is very important. I struggle with sin as a born-again Christian. We all do. How do you win that battle with sin? How do you win the battle and the struggle over sin? The Judaizers would say, by the law. Keep the law. And that's why they were so adamant. Man, you got to get these Gentiles into the law. You got to keep these quote unquote believers in Christ Jesus in check. Put them back under the stringent, rigid structure of the Jewish law. The law will help them in that battle with sin. And so what they would say to Paul the Apostle is, Paul, you are preaching a message that takes away the law, and you're taking away their help. And and they would even say, Paul, you are preaching a doctrine that encourages sinful behavior. You're promoting sin. You're giving these believers the idea that, hey, man, it's, it's, it's faith and Jesus Christ, by grace, no law, and you can just do whatever you want. So that's why Paul responds in verse 17. If while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So Paul is basically saying, are you suggesting... That being justified by Christ alone promotes sin and therefore makes Jesus Christ himself a minister of sin? I hope you're not suggesting that. Certainly not. Jesus in no way whatsoever is encouraging a system that increases sin in the life of his people. Certainly not. And then Paul would say, you say that the the law is going to be a big help to help us win the battle of sin. Paul says in verse 18, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. The idea is I come to Christ. I'm not relying on the law. I'm not under law. So now after I become a Christian and I start to build this law again, I will make myself a transgressor even worse. Because, my friend, listen, a law system makes you like that. A law system before Christ cannot save you. And a law system after you become a Christian does not help you in the battle with sin. In fact, Paul argues it doesn't help. It makes you more of a transgressor. You'll be more and more defeated living under a law system. Okay, so I ask you again, what about sin in the life of a believer? If the law law doesn't do it, what helps us? 
How do we win the battle? Look what Paul writes in verse 19. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's answer is the new creation that you become in Jesus Christ. Paul's marvelous gospel and the one true gospel of grace. You can't earn anything to salvation. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're justified. But you're also transformed. You become different. You become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He says... I died to the law that I might live to God. When you give your life to Christ, you're forgiven and you become alive to God. You become born again, spiritually renewed. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. Oh, please understand the miracle that takes place in your life when you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're changed. The old you dies. A new you is born. Christ lives in you. Paul will go on later in in this book to talk about how you get indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You're different. Now, I know there's a lot of people that like to get into all these mystical, supernatural, spiritual systems of belief. Oh, I'm going to get off. Listen, there is nothing more mystical or supernatural than Christian conversion. Nothing. And if we could even understand it just a little bit, the Bible says that Christ in you. The Holy Spirit in you. And Paul says, there's a whole different lifestyle. You don't live under law. He said, now I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I am in a relationship with Christ. I live my life in in a in a dependence of faith upon the living Lord Jesus Christ that lives inside of me. It's relationship. It's power. It's joy. You can live an amazing life. You can win the battle over sin in your dependence upon Christ. And the Holy Spirit, he can change you. You can live a much, much better life through faith in Jesus Christ than trying to go back under a law system. John Bunyan, one of my favorites, born in 1628, died in 1688, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He's the one that is credited with saying this. He learned it. 
said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Do you see the difference? True Christianity is a living, dynamic walk with the living God who transforms you as you depend upon him and walk by faith in him. It's not keeping a silly old law. Now he makes even what I would say, look at this final argument in verse 21. Look what he tells the folks. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in what? Now, I want you to think about what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. The sacrifice that Christ made. He left heaven, he became man. And he went to the cross and he suffered under all those implements. But the worst suffering was that our sins were placed upon him and he died in our place. And he took the wrath of God in our place. Paul says, if you could get righteous by keeping a law, the Son of God did all that in vain. Implying that you can't get righteous by keeping a law. There's only one way. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in agony. He's considering what's going to be taking place. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to face this. And you remember he said, if it's possible, take this cup. There's another way. But there was no other way. And so Jesus stepped out of that garden and walked down that path of suffering so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven, justified, declared righteous, and have our lives changed. What an important moment in church history. Paul, the defender of the gospel of grace. Had Paul not stood up, had there not been a fight, Christianity could have become just another meaningless little ritual, rule-keeping thing within Judaism. But because of Paul, because of what he fought for, we know that it's much more than that. And it was a fight in the early church. Peter struggled with it. Lots of folks struggled with it. Eventually, they got it settled. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council takes place, and it became absolutely settled. Everyone in the church on the same page. So, I'll tell you again, you're a miracle. You're a miracle of God's grace. Think of what Christ did for you and you've received him. He's justified you and he is the power for you to live. Live in dependence upon him. Walk with him. Let him empower you.
Don't go back to a little religious law-keeping system. Amen? Let's pray together as we close. Father, I thank you for, Lord, the important, the great importance of this letter, the great importance of what Paul did, the greatest importance of what the church came to understand. And Lord, still to this very day, 2,000 years later, there are many who believe that keeping a law will get right with you. Joining a religion gets them right with you. No, it's through faith in you, Lord. You did all the work. You supply all the power. That is the true joy of what you've done. And then, Father, forgive us when we turn our relationship into with you into something that's uh, not at all what it should be. Where we turn the Christian life into what we can do, the laws that we can keep, thinking we become more spiritual than anyone else, Lord, forgive us. Remind us that we are utterly equal. We're saved the same way. And I pray that we would just simply grow in our relationships with you. That we would come to be those men and women that depend upon you more to a greater degree day by day. We'd walk with you. Help us, Lord. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, perhaps um, perhaps it's, it's been your thinking for most of your life that if you just do good enough, you're going to be fine with the Lord. You get saved by keeping a good work. You climb this little ladder. Maybe that's what you've always thought. Listen, you could never be good enough. God is way more perfect than you could ever hope to be. But God loves you and he provided the means. He's given the solution at great cost. His son died for you, took all of your sins upon himself, rose again. And if you place your faith in him right now, he'll justify you right now. He'll declare you righteous. You'll become a child in his family. And he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will transform your life. And you can learn to walk with him and grow in your knowledge of him. You can learn to become victorious over those battles with sin. But you gotta, you got to ask him. you got to place your faith and trust in him. Nobody can do that for you. You've got to do it. 
And so if you haven't, I want you to have an opportunity right now to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and let him justify you tonight. That's you. Just he'll hear the he'll hear the softest cry of your heart if it's uttered in faith. Just say, Lord Jesus, I, I throw myself at you tonight. I admit I am a sinner. I could never be good enough. There's no religion I could ever join. I cry out to you. Thank you for dying on that cross for my sins and rising again. And right now I receive you. I receive the free gift of salvation. Justify me. Make me a child in your family. Take me just the way I am right now. But then change me into the person that you want me to be by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the power of the new life. God, do that work, I pray. I pray. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you 